The history of Star Wars is the history of cinema. For everything you like about Star Wars, there is at least one film that inspired it. And we're going to review them all on Episode Zero. Stop, stop, or we'll have to pay royalties. Oh no! <laughs> Hello everybody, and welcome to episode zero, the Star Wars podcast where we don't talk about Star Wars. <laughs> My name is William Bibiani, I'm a film critic for Bloody Disgusting, and everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold, I write for IGN, and people write in and give me an embarrassing nickname. They call me Rockmeister McCool, which is way cooler than I am. Well, we established on a recent episode of our other podcast, Cancel Too Soon, that your Star Wars name is actually the opposite of your porn name, and mm. it's the street you grew up on followed by your the, pet. The name of your first pet, your childhood yeah. pet. Yeah, Yeah. so I would be Hill Rio. Hill Rio is a good one. It's not bad. Yeah. yeah. And mine, mine was uh, Euclid Zeus. Also good. <laughs> Zeus is spelled with two O's. I, I, had, I had two, so what, what's Sounds better, Euclid Zeus or Euclid Mercury? Euclid Zeus sounds a bit more Star Warsy. They usually try to avoid those like really earthy words, unless it's like Luke Skywalker. Okay, that's the exception. Uh, He's the protagonist. Yeah, this. Welcome to Episode Zero. We've been promising this for a while, and we're finally here. We're finally prepared, and we're finally ready to hand it to you, the people. Uh, this is kind of a high concept show and William this was your idea yeah so explain a little bit what was going through your head when we when you thought up uh, episode zero well thank you for that lovely build up um okay so I am of the belief that when you're trying to learn about the history of cinema there's one really good way which is a lot of really good ways of doing it but one really good way that I like is to take a movie that you like that is relatively recent or very popular, and work backwards. Yeah, find the thing that uh, directly influenced it, and then find the thing that influenced that. Exactly. And then find the thing that influenced that. There's a lot Uh, of people who seem to think that, like, movie history was so dramatically rewritten by Star Wars that they don't tend to go back past Star Wars very often. mm -hmm. But Star Wars is such a pastiche of the films and filmmakers and other p- elements of pop culture ephemera that came before it, that if you pick apart Star Wars, you can kind of see a huge section of the history of cinema up until Star Wars. Star Wars is, in some respects, a culmination of that. Not mm-hmm. as though, uh, now that we have Star Wars, we don't need the rest. But George Lucas just soaked all that up like a sponge and then he squeezed the sponge out into a Star Wars-shaped container. And that's well, uh, what we got. 
Uh, George Lucas comes from a generation of filmmakers that uh, was uh, is sometimes referred to as like the film school generation. Yeah. Whereas uh, your Martin Scorsese's, your Francis yeah, Ford Coppola's, yeah, the, your Brian De Palma's, the, these yeah this this these group of filmmakers who are all about the same age and all kind of came out of film schools and studying cinema in a way that previous generations of filmmakers didn't do. Yeah. Uh, so they were actually really really aware of film history in a way that other filmmakers from previous generations weren't. So it's uh, kind of fitting that a lot of the films of that came from these filmmakers, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, very heavily leaned on the notion of pastiche. Yep. They were repeating a lot of what they had seen and learned from the cinemas very directly. And indeed, a lot of the cinema that they called out to, some of which is esoteric and unusual, and we'll cover that too, but a lot of it is something that I think when you watch Star Wars or when you watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, a, mm. a film George Lucas uh, produced and uh, co-developed with Steven Spielberg, who directed and, and it. It has a lot in common with Star Wars. A lot. Um, was they were able to take elements of popular culture that people were already inherently familiar with and heighten them mm-hmm. and really boost the level of craft and quality. Kind of make the more or less the platonic ideal yeah. uh, of, of your memory of a thing. Yeah, so when you see a scene uh, in uh, Indiana Jones where all the action is totally awesome and somehow Indiana Jones' hat never falls off, mm-hmm. you remember... At the time, all of the adventure stories and all the serials that you saw where the characters are so larger than life, that was just a thing. And that's just one of many, many, many examples, of course. Um, So Star Wars is a combination of a variety of elements. And because George Lucas was uh, very well-read and very intelligent and uh, had more influences than just, I like this movie, I'll do something like it. Uh, Star Wars includes elements of uh, classic uh, Hollywood adventure films, uh, B-movie pulpy serials that otherwise had been sort of Mm -hmm. culturally disregarded as kiddie fare, uh, high-minded, important, iconic samurai movies, uh, some of the greatest westerns ever made, experimental films that were unlike anything that had been done. and, Star- and which George Lucas had already made before he had made Star Wars. Well, some of them, yes. THX 1138 was, was very psychedelic in a lot of ways. Yeah. So George Lucas, his film, his big opus, and and the films that followed in the franchise, and we'll talk about the influences of many of those films too, mm-hmm. uh, the, they're a product of the people who made them, and the people who made them are actively taking the things that inspired them and putting them into Star Wars in order to remake them for new generations, in order to look at them from a different angle. And what this podcast, Episode Zero, what happens before all the episodes, uh, is going to endeavor to do is to readjust the angle so that we take the thing that inspired Star Wars, and now we're just looking at that thing. Yeah, and we want to introduce you to some films. We want to contextualize uh, elements of Star Wars, more yeah. or less. Yeah. Well, we want to, and again, some of the movies that we're that we're going to be talking about uh, on this podcast are relatively unknown, even to Whitney and myself. We will be watching some of these movies for the first time. There are other things that we are intimately familiar with. We've seen a lot, and we're going to speak about them uh, once again, and maybe try to f- refocus. 
uh, the conversation about them and try to make them as accessible as possible to people who might not see them if they didn't know they were inspirational to Star Wars. Mm. Star Wars changed the world. It certainly it was, changed the world of cinema. It changed uh, the world of cinema. It changed uh, the way we start to think of uh, just the way we consume movies. Uh, it was uh, finally time, you know, this has been written about a lot. It came at a time when a lot of Hollywood films were very adult and very dour and very kind of bitter. You know, this is the same generation that produced films like The Godfather and Taxi Driver. Uh, and along comes Star Wars, which is actually really bright and brisk and it's morally absolute and it's easy to follow. Mm-hmm. It has amazing special effects, a lot of technicals that have never been seen before. Kid, The, the notion of... An expansive young person audience kind of like it it had been exploited before, but not to this degree. The notion that there is more to a film than just the film, i.e. what they used to call the garbage rights. That is to say the toy sales was relatively new. Uh, Like Planet of the Apes was maybe the only film before that really took advantage of, like, tie-in merchandise. Yeah, before Star Wars, and I don't know if we're going to cover it on this uh, Mm. uh, podcast, but Planet of the Apes was the sci-fi franchise in town. Like, Star Trek hadn't taken off, Star Trek wouldn't take off truly as a pop cultural phenomenon until after the movie started. Until the 70s, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, So when Star Wars came out, there was Planet of the Apes, which was still reasonably popular, had toys. Star Wars was a gamble. Star Wars Mm. was unlike anything that had been done before, or at the very least, if it's like something that had been done before, it had never been done on this scale, with mm. this much ambition. There had been ambitious and expensive sci-fi movies, but they were, you know, 2001 A Space Odyssey. They were uh, big and psychedelic and philosophical and mm. impressive. And the idea that we're going to throw... Star Wars was not the most expensive movie when it came out, but it was pretty expensive. Mm. And we're going to throw money at this thing, which maybe is the worst idea anyone's ever had. <laughs> uh, and George Lucas, in order to sweeten the pot, said, okay, listen, we'll, I'll take a pay cut. And uh, I will, uh, in, in exchange, I will get the sequel rights and the toy rights, the mm. merchandising rights, which which were worth nothing at the yeah. time. People thought that wasn't that wasn't worth a damn. Yeah, the odds were exceptionally good that there would never be a sequel, and that the toys that they were making, which weren't even ready when the movie came out, <laughs> uh, they sold empty. They literally sold empty boxes. Yeah, with like vouchers that later on you can get these toys. Mm. Uh, that was considered the studio just going well. Great, we get George Lucas for a song. This is awesome. All we got to do is give away all the merchandising rights to Star Wars. We will go I, down in history as the smartest executives in Hollywood history. I hold that uh, Star Wars would not have had the legs or the cultural uh, ubiquity that it does were it not for those toys. Those toys kept and, Star Wars alive. Yeah. So um, yeah, whenever there was no sort of- there was no television series. Mm-hmm. There were comic books. And in fact, some of the early Marvel tie-in comic books, before there was a grander canon mm-hmm. of Star Wars, are really weird. Like, some of the early comic books in Star Wars has, like, Luke Skywalker and Han Solo teaming up with an anthropomorphic rabbit. Sure, why not? I mean... He looks like Bucky O'Hare. Like, it's, it's just... Weird things in Star Wars. There are not, weird... Yeah. Well, there are and there aren't. He, he really does look like Bugs Bunny, but I think he was green. <laughs> okay. Like, that's weird. And that's something that's not in Star Wars. These were things were disavowed. But the toys, you could buy them. There were toys for a whole bunch of different characters. You could tell those stories at home. 
that kept the story alive, that allowed people to basically ignore the extreme awfulness of the holiday special. Which, again, we talk every time it comes up, it is worth noting when you hear something called like the worst thing ever, the worst movie ever, the worst song ever, 99 <laughs> times out of 100, you watch it and you go, well, that's bad, but is it really the worst thing I've ever seen? I've seen so much worse. I've seen so much worse. Star Wars Holiday Special, yeah. Yeah, it's, that's it's, really that bad. It's as bad as you've heard, if not worse. It, yeah, it is it's, bad. I am. I consider myself a bit of a connoisseur of crap. Mm. I love watching bad movies. I think bad oh, yeah. movies are fascinating. And, and I think bad we, movies we watched, are beautiful. We watched Plane Nine from Outer Space repeatedly in yeah. high school. Yeah, yeah. yeah these, they're they're a pure expression mm. of uh, people who, gosh darned it, tried and just didn't have <laughs> whatever it took to make that movie yeah. and make it right. Uh, and uh, usually you can just sort of get behind some of that gung-ho, like, we're making a movie, like that mm. Ed Wood kind of enthusiasm yeah. behind a lot of the so-called worst movies ever made. Uh, Star Wars Holiday Special? No, no there's, there's nothing. There's nothing there's there. Like, there's like that animated bit's okay, and B. Arthur sings a pretty good song about the closing of the bar on Tatooine, no, it's, but it's he, actually, she sings it to the rat from Food of the Gods, so it's really weird. It, and and it's, it's actually not a good song. No. It's just a pleasure to watch B. Arthur singing, and I love of Harvey Corman, just not in that. Um, uh, yeah, a lot of it's in Wookiee. Uh, th- that animated sequence isn't as good as you've heard. Look, we digress. Uh, if, anyway. you wanna, if you want to hear us talk about the whole entirety of Star Wars, we just did a Cancel Too Soon episode about Star Wars droids. We talked a lot about that. It's a good companion piece. But uh, the, the most, to segue into this very first episode of episode zero, mm-hmm. uh, the most uh, obvious influence on Star Wars, and it takes a lot of its tone a lot of its characters, a lot of its visual iconography, even like the opening title crawl mm-hmm. from very directly from Flash Gordon. Now, uh, Flash Gordon, to offer a little bit of history on the Flash Gordon character, it started out as a comic book, started to get adopted into cinematic serials in the 1930s. Uh, and in the 1930s, the first Flash Gordon serial uh, start in 30, 1936, mm-hmm. the first Flash Gordon serial started to get released in theaters by Universal. Universal was actually not... You said these things were dismissed as kiddie fare and maybe kids like this stuff. This was their bid at getting an adult audience. Mm-hmm. And indeed, this one rivaled only their film, uh, what was it, Three Smart Girls, mm-hmm. which was nominated for Best Picture in 1936, yeah. as one of the highest grocers for the the studio. Yeah, uh, Flash Gordon was a was a major, major, mm. major success. Uh, Flash Gordon was a success as a comic strip. Uh, it was basically designed as... Um, uh, Hey, Buck Rogers is popular. Can we do one of those? And so what they, a Buck Rogers knockoff. And what they tried to do originally was uh, try to get the comic book rights or the the comics Sunday comics rights uh, to John Carter of Mars, mm. uh, the William S. Burroughs character who, over a series of novels, kind of invented the dashing, swashbuckling sci-fi genre as we know it. He Mm -hmm. took a lot of the fantastical elements that we knew from fantasy stories, which were big sellers at the time, and threw in aliens and floating cities in the clouds Um, and gold bikinis and uh, uh, daring heroes with superpowers. And yeah, there's a lot in there that inspired everything from Superman to Star Wars. There's two warring kingdoms and there's uh, like the local space aliens and I would love evil psychic witch order of witches. There's Dejah Thoris who in the books is essentially naked. Yeah. So there's, there is the gold bikini. There there is, there is jewelry and that's all. There's a, a, a definitely a male, 
male, essentially a male porn fantasy running mm-hmm. through a lot of this stuff because it was written by Edgar Rice Burroughs. He's a straight guy. Yeah. Uh, and, and Star Wars has a lot of that po- insert power mm-hmm. fantasy where, you know, Luke Skywalker has been considered by many to be basically George Lucas in space. Yeah. yeah. What and, if George Lucas went to space? Well, he hopes it mm-hmm. would be like this. I'm a little uh, disheartened that John Carter hasn't gotten sort of the cultural traction that it perhaps deserves. I know. And everything uh, that it and, influenced did. Yeah, and, now, yeah, yeah. and now when John Carter came the, out, when Disney made this big budget production of it. Nobody the, cared. Yeah, the movie has problems. The movie's actually pretty good. It says it's about as good as most space opera movies mm-hmm. get, but because everything that ripped it off really hard mm-hmm. had long had a bigger foothold in multimedia presentation, John Carter just felt old. Yeah, it felt like old hat. Which and it's a shame. And I, at some point I would like to there's a couple of uh uh things that influenced Star Wars that didn't become movies until after Star Wars, and I want to dedicate mm. maybe one or two episodes yeah, like to stuff that, like John Carter or, or Valerian. Valerian yeah, yeah. Um, that would I think would be interesting to sort of work backwards and forwards mm. and sort of look at what influenced it and now what Star Wars then influenced in return. Yeah, that might be yeah. interesting, but maybe that that's later after we've covered yeah, more ground. But but, 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 uh, but to Flash Gordon anyway. So they what happened was the uh, the newspaper strips they wanted to come up with their own Buck Rogers, and they came up with Flash Gordon. Flash Gordon. Is a blonde-haired, blue-eyed mega hunk. He's a football star. Well, originally uh, in the in the serial, he's he's a polo star. Oh, that's right. He is a polo star. Yeah, which is a different time. Mm. Uh, but uh, he's a sports star. He's a big, hunky, muscle-bound sports mm. star. All-American all man. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he and his uh, his uh, outer space lover uh, Dale Dale mm. uh, they uh, end up on a spaceship. Uh, invented by the great... Uh, Dr. Zarkov. Yes, Dr. Alexis Zarkov. Uh, later, I think, renamed Hans for the movie. Yeah. Um, and uh, they are on a mission to go to the free-flying planet Mongo, which, unlike most planets which are in orbit, is like zooming around the galaxy. And it's on a collision course with Earth. And at the beginning of the comic strip and the serial, Earth is doomed. And Flash Gordon and Dale are flying to visit their families and be there before the end. The ship uh, gets... The ship crashes. Mm -hmm. And it just happens to crash right next to Dr. Zarkov's experimental rocket ship where he is going to travel to Mongo and try to save the Earth. Mm -hmm. Well, now Flash Gordon and Dale are on it too. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, they end up on this planet and in the first installment... Of the first Flash Gordon serial, which is going to be what we're going to focus on, because there were others. Mm. Uh, it's, the episode is called The Planet of Peril. We see two things. One, giant monsters. <laughs> and two, our supervillain, Ming the Merciless. M- Ming the Merciless is, is played by um, uh, Charles B. Middleton in this serial. Yeah. Who uh, has a long career of, of small roles. He's, I think this is probably his best known role. Um, but uh, he was designed after Fu Manchu. He was yeah. made to look like Fu Manchu. He had sort of that long mustache. Uh, I, I only learned recently, thanks to you, that uh, the Klingons in the the original appearance of the Klingons in Star Trek were also designed after Fu Manchu. To an extent. Uh, Fu Manchu uh, first started in uh, like literature in the 1910s and was 
a kind of all-purpose, uh, used by several different authors, uh, super Asian supervillain. Yeah, very yeah. racist. Incredibly racist stereotype, yeah. but one that, uh, rather unfortunately, just sort of got its foothold and stuck around for decades. And in uh, fact, even... it's the, he's the, 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 the basic character type, mm. this kind of... Genius supervillain in some cases he has magical powers or scientific powers, depending on who writes him, uh has influenced a lot of different characters. It very heavily influenced, for example, a Marvel supervillain called the Mandarin. Mm-hmm. Uh and so pervasive is the influence of Fu Manchu, this again, very racist, villainous uh caricature, that when the movie Iron Man 3 came out and they decided to subvert the Mandarin mm-hmm. and make all of that uh, racist iconography, which they added, they added, you know, racism, uh, uh, racist elements about uh, Middle Eastern terrorists and a bunch yeah. of other stuff that basically all of the things but about it- people from other countries that scare, like, American politicians and, like, makes us like, <laughs> oh, we gotta bomb that country. Like, that... Every element in that character turned out to have been explicitly designed it was, it to was, freak people out. It was propaganda. Yeah. It was all propaganda, and in fact... It's, it's the, such the a char- good twist. Yeah, and it, and it turns out the Mandarin didn't actually exist. And it was their way of getting around the fact that one of Iron Man's most popular villains is a racist caricature. Mm-hmm. A lot of people still complain about that to this day. It's a weird thing to fight for. Yeah. Uh, it's like um, when uh, I, I forgot the character's name was just like the old one, uh, Doctor the ancient one, uh, yeah. Doctor Strange in that same series had a similar character where they had this. It's it's not an an evil Asian supervillain, but he's still an Asian stereotype, this yeah. sort of like wise sage who exists to teach things to a white guy. Yeah, and uh, they decided to get around that in the movie by recasting oh recasting the character with a white actress. Yeah, Tilda and then, Swinton. And then there was a little bit of push pull. It's like, well, you got rid of the stereotype, but there's also Asian erasure. So which yeah. is the better path here? There's listen when we tell stories that are based on explicitly. Uh. Uh, characters and storylines which in their basic construct mm. are racist or sexist and if you and once you and if you remove those elements they change the story a lot mm. this is something that we're gonna run into and it's a conversation we're gonna keep yeah, having no. as people try to find the right mm. way to keep stories alive assuming they deserve to stay alive mm. uh, while you know, still dealing with the ugly history of humanity, which naturally comes out in our art. Yeah, yeah, and uh, there's nothing in Star Wars that takes this explicit Fu Manchu iconography uh, and just sort of carries it over because they actually re- recontextualize the villains mm-hmm. to match sort of the Nazis. Uh, uh, yeah, so Darth Vader has some samurai elements to him but as the, the, well. The Nazi helmet, man. It's no, got no, like a flared helmet that no, lo- no, no. looks very fascist. They're very fascist. Uh, they're very European. Uh, they're but, all, play, all played by British actors. Uh, well, James Earl Jones, but mm. uh, who is not mm. British. Uh, but uh, yes, yes, that's, that is true. And that's something that uh, I think makes Star Wars age a little better. Um, but uh, there are stereotypes that exist within Star Wars and so uh, this sort of heightened version of this this Fu Manchu uh, caricature isn't that far removed 
from the Namudians in the uh, prequel movies yeah. who, were, who were criticized as being Asian caricatures. I thought it was uh, Namudians. I, if, I apologize right. if I'm wrong. Uh, Watto. Uh, oh, golly, the, yeah. The uh, rather offensive stereotype uh, who owned Anakin Skywalker. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Star Wars is not above this. And then, of of course, there were the complaints about Jar Jar Binks. Sure. Star Wars is not above this Mm. at all. They've made some better choices, but they've also fallen back on some bullshit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, But uh, Ming the Merciless, who even has an Asian name, Mm -hmm. is played by a white actor, but he's made to look sort of Asian, and that's what he's meant to evoke. Yeah. And uh, it's it's hard to get around because you're just looking at this guy in just about every episode. Ming the Merciless... Is an evil sadist who rules this planet and uh, this planet where all of the other popular around. Yeah. And, and here's the thing about uh, uh, Mongo: uh, Mongo is a planet full of different uh, cultures, just like Earth. Actually, mm. it's always weird. And we call it what do you call it? The planet of the, the planet, al- planet of matching hats. The planet of the, matching yeah. hats. This is a, just a, the planet of hats. I think. We see this a lot in Star Trek mm. because they have to. They want to tell these big, complicated stories about cultures, but. Cultures are really nuanced, so, like, Earth doesn't just have one culture. Earth Mm. has a ton of cultures and subcultures within those cultures. So if aliens landed on Earth and said, oh, what are humans all about? Well, these guys are all about this, Mm. and these guys are all about this, and these folks believe in this thing, and these folks who are the kids of those folks don't believe in that at all. It gets really complicated, so Star Trek simplifies it. Some people on this planet can't even name all the countries on this planet. Yeah, 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 so, like, Star Trek really simplifies it. So all the Klingons more or less believe in the same basic philosophy. Mm. They have the same basic shared history. They, they have the they same all, basic culture. They all dress alike. I was about to say, they all wear the same thing. Yeah. And that's something I actually really like about uh, uh, Star Wars is that every place in Star Wars except like the Death Star, which is full of white British dudes, uh, is actually extremely multicultural, mm. at least within different species. It would take us another film to get a person of color Uh, and uh, take us even further to have a person of color who was anything even remotely resembling a protagonist Uh, but at the very least George Lucas envisioned a world in outer space where there were a ton of different people on every single planet who were different aliens because they're all flying around in space in Mongo and I think this is something that certainly helped in Star Wars there's a bunch of different civilizations on Mongo, and... And they're all being oppressed by Ming. They're all being oppressed by Ming. Some of them have alliances with Ming. Some of them are actively fighting Ming. Uh, and they're all sort of animal-related. Mm. So there's the Hawkmen, who are fly around on their wings, and we are Hawkmen! <laughs> and there's, there's the Lion Men. Yeah! And is it the shark men? And yeah, the the the, 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 fish, the, the, the swimming guys. Yeah, yeah there's, and there's an undersea uh, civilization as well. I was a little disappointed to find out that those fish guys can't actually breathe underwater because there's a whole subplot about their their base being flooded. And I'm like, then why do you live underwater? <laughs> What's the matter with you? At least was, at least the Gungans actually breathe down there. Like that uh, at least the, makes sense. Th- those people are amphibians. Uh, the Gungans are very specifically based off of this Flash Gordon element. And in Mm. fact, there's a whole bit in this early Flash Gordon serial, which is just that whole sequence from The Phantom Menace where uh, they get in... Oh, what's that thing called? The bongo? The bongo. They get in the... Thank you for... The bongo on mongo. They get in their bongo... That's that's a really weird piece of trivia that's in my brain. They get in their mongo bongo and they... (laughs) They... (laughs) Right? 
and they and they travel down the water, and they run into a whole bunch of successively larger giant fish monsters, and then they're in this undersea kingdom. Mm. Hey, it's the undersea kingdom <laughs> for you Stop. and for me, and yeah. it's fun. That's that's not an influence on Star Wars. No, but Flash Gordon did influence Undersea Kingdom. The oh, success no, of the sure. Flash Gordon sci-fi serial led to a lot more sci-fi serials in its wake. One of which was the Undersea Kingdom, which was uh, lampooned on MST3K, mm. Mystery Science Theater 3000. Uh, but uh, yeah, so they go through all of these giant fish monsters, and then they're underwater with this whole undersea civilization, and those that civilization has a direct connection to the people above them. Uh, all of that is in an episode of the original Flash Gordon serial, from getting into the ship, zooming along, running into a ton of different undersea monsters. Mm. It's all in there. It's almost shameless. <laughs> well... George Lucas was always very open about his influences, and uh, from what I understand, he even pitched his Star Wars idea, usually leading with his influences. Yeah. Uh, story goes, um, and I, I just learned this uh, immediately prior to recording, yeah. uh, and evidently this was pretty well known. Uh, the reason uh, George, George Lucas couldn't get the rights to uh, Flash Gordon just Which to he do a, tried to just do. to do a flash a straight Flash Gordon movie yeah. was because Federico Fellini was tied up in the F the Flash Gordon project and that kind of tracks like I can imagine mm -hmm. Federico Fellini wanting to do that Federico Fellini if you don't know mm -hmm. uh, is an Italian filmmaker who made well a lot yeah. of movies actually well, some of them some serious dramas the, many the, of them the most famous of all italian filmmakers you know right up there with visconti antonioni and leone but uh yeah. um uh, i don't know i feel like leone might have a little bit more pop culture just well, mainstream uh, awareness now yeah, but, but among the tarantino generation perhaps well, I but feel uh, like people know but anyway that, that's mm. neither here nor there um but uh, Fellini made a lot of uh, bizarre films, films of fantastical realism, films with outlandish uh, mm. sets and imagery. And the idea of doing Flash Gordon, which before Star Wars came along and added this sort of patina of reality mm. to these very broad uh, fantasy stories... Uh, you know, worlds that felt really lived in and natural dialogue that wasn't very vaunted. I mean, yeah, George Lucas was never the greatest in dialogue, but, you know, there were just people sniping at each other and, and acting kind of normal. Um, yeah, the idea of Fellini wanting to do Flash Gordon, and I'm sure he wanted it to be quite a trip. Uh, that I, I buy that. Right. I'd love to see it. For sure. I would yeah. love to see Fellini's science fiction freak out. So uh, George uh, Lucas couldn't get the rights mm. to that, and so he decided to take a whole bunch of stuff that he loved about Flash Gordon. And Flash Gordon, and specifically these serials, were repeated on TV constantly when he was a kid. So he watched them fact, all the time. Uh, in fact, this serial was recut and retitled several times. So if you're yeah. looking for it on home video, you might have a little trouble. Yeah. Uh, it, it was it's like 90-minute versions, even though the actual whole serial is like, what is it, like four? Four or five it's, hours it's like long? four and a half hours long. Yeah, it's, it's, if you watch it's a long every, set. If you watch every uh, every episode. It moves though, and that's something that's well, I mean, really that, cool. That's that's what a serial is all about. The serial uh, serials only run maybe twenty minutes a piece. Yeah, uh, uh, we should the, probably clarify what they are in case anyone is oh, young uh, and maybe okay, not yeah. familiar. Uh, back before, well, people had televisions. Mm. Uh, 
movies didn't just show movies. They showed a ton of stuff. There were uh, there were features, but there were also cartoon shorts. There were also newsreels. Yeah, because people was, didn't have the daily news yeah, on, the, on their TV. They had, so, yeah. Some people couldn't afford to buy just the you know flick a dime at the the newsboy and get the local yeah. paper. Not every day, anyway. Uh, and and then there were also uh, serials. That is a gigantic movie broken up into essentially thirteen parts, usually. And this is one entry fee would get you all of this. So like you mm. give them whatever the mm. the entry fee was in the thirties and forties, you would get. An A feature, mm. a B feature, usually cheaper, more genre-oriented. This is the reason why people tend to write off a movie as a B movie. Mm. It's because you pay to see the A movie, and you stick around to see the B movie. Mm. Yeah. Every once in a while, the B movie was and, amazing, like Orson Welles' Touch of Evil or something. But usually, it was a little forgettable. Yeah, it, it's the, the film the studio was trying to dump. And, and yeah. in between, there were also uh, coming attractions for yeah. upcoming movies that trailed the A feature. And we still use the term trailers to this day yeah, the, for that reason. Yeah, we call them trailers because... They used to come after the movie, not beforehand. They're mm. trail along. Which is why I try to say preview now, because that's what they are. Eh, we also call them films, even though they're not shot on film most of the time. Well, that's true. I accept it. I accept mm. that language just gets funny sometimes. Motion pictures. Uh, but yeah, a serial was like a television series. It was a serialized narrative. It mm. would be very briskly paced, usually something uh, very melodramatic, mm. uh, something with crime or uh, uh, you know, violence, or eventually sci-fi. After mm. Flash Gordon was a huge hit, um, and they would always end on a cliffhanger. And mm. sometimes, literally, people would literally be hanging from a cliff, and then they would say, "Like, <laughs> how are they going to get out of this one?" That's why they call it a cliffhanger. Um, so they would be briskly paced. They would be really exciting. And then they would end with a, oh, shit, what's going to happen next? I guess I have to come back to the theater next week. Mm. And that's how they get your money. Yep. It's a fun way to tell stories. And you can tell that George Lucas was very inspired by that, even though uh, on two levels. Mm. One, uh, he decided uh, eventually, even after the first movie had come out, to start calling his movies episodes. Mm. And you'll notice that he really leaned into that real hard with Empire Strikes Back, a movie which ends on a cliffhanger. And, and was, yeah, started with episode five, yeah. whereas Star Wars didn't, initially, yeah. didn't have an episode number. It was just Star Wars. Yeah, because people uh, didn't want to, they probably didn't want to confuse people, but after it was a hit, he felt comfortable adding it in there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the idea is that, and the idea is that Star Wars does kind of dump you into the story in medias res, mm. which is a term which no. means... In, uh, in the middle of things. In the middle um, of things. So it doesn't start at the beginning of the story, it mm. starts in the middle. It's just why it starts in the middle of a shootout with a bunch of robots, and they never explain anything. You're just in the middle of it. Yeah, uh, they, Star Wars, the first mind, Star Wars only stops to explain something like three times. Uh, they explain well, what a Death Star is, they explain what the Force is, and they explain... Not, and, and even then, not really. Yeah, just yeah. kind of vaguely, just kind of give you the gist of it. Uh, and like and like one or two other like major mm. elements that are supposed to be weird to the characters. Yeah. If the character just understand something they don't stop to explain it mm. uh that's a really daring way to tell a story yeah, like and, and now why did george lucas decide to start start with episode four well because if you think of the experience of going to see a, a serial in a theater you don't necessarily start with episode one mm -hmm. you, unless you're going to the theater all the time yeah. and you're sort of seeing all of the the these trailer reels and all of these cartoon short reels and all these newsreels pass through. The theaters at the time, by the way, just kept the projectors running pretty much all the time. They'd stop for like an intermission. But yeah, they would just sort of keep cycling, cycling through and there are no start or stop times. You just yeah. go in and catch what was showing on the screen. Yeah. You would, the uh, idea of coming into a movie uh, and specifically paying to be there when the movie starts 
didn't was, start until the 1960s. Yeah, that uh, that didn't become a cultural standard where I don't want to miss the beginning of the movie. Mm. That really didn't solidify until around the time Psycho came out. And we, we even still use the phrase, this is where we came in, yeah. to emulate that phenomenon. Uh, okay, I saw this movie, we saw the end of this movie, now let's watch the beginning after that. Okay, this is the part of the movie where we came in, and we can go now. Yeah. We saw it out of order. Um, so yeah, uh, George Lucas is trying to recreate that experience of being a kid, not knowing what was playing, just going to the theater, plunking down you know, your 15 cents or however much it cost. And just catching whatever chapter it was. And the chapters never bothered to catch it. There was a little recap at the start. Yeah. Which, uh, and, and it took the yeah. form of a title scroll, yeah, just, just a, like Star Wars. They would show like what each character was doing, what was going on in the plot, and they would just drop you into the cliffhanger that had the previous chapter had left you on. So the character's already in danger from frame one. There's yeah. a lion about to eat them, whatever. It's a captivating and, uh, way to jump into a story. And also... Um, Parents didn't go with kids to the movies back then either. Well, not necessarily. No, but this was actually really common. Uh, and, you know, we like to think, oh, that's such irresponsible parenting. Well, yeah. <laughs> yes, it <laughs> yeah. was. This, this wasn't pa- far removed from, oh, your kid's 10? For, Put them to work. For, first of all, the word parenting, like the verb to parent, didn't really come along until the 70s. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, this idea of, like, just locking your kids out of the house and say, come back at dusk. Yeah. It was pretty common. And taking your kids to the movies, just giving them admission and leaving them there all day was pretty common. And in fact, that created this weird sort of kid-like tribalism where the kids all were sharing this really common experience of having fun by themselves, enjoying these things that were inherently theirs, that their parents weren't even at all privy to. Mm -hmm. It's where you would meet friends. Uh, When you were a little older, it's where you would neck in the back row where the kids couldn't see you, presumably. Uh, They can always see you. And... uh, (laughs) And so I think there's this kind of uh, almost like a party atmosphere going on with these sorts of things. And I think George Lucas, when he's making Star Wars, is most strongly trying to connect with that experience. Right. Coming in in the middle of the sci-fi serial, having it feel as fun as it did, feel like you're just getting nothing but excitement. And indeed, Pauline Kael had a really wonderful description of Star Wars. She described it as a box of Cracker Jacks with nothing but prizes inside. Yep. No food, no just nourishment. prizes. Yeah, there's no nourishment whatsoever. She was very critical of Star Wars. She thought it was yeah. actually quite bad for not having the kind of cinematic substance that she preferred. Right. And I understand what she's talking about. It's a legit criticism, but it's just not what Star Wars is going for, is it? Star Wars is going yeah. for... I mean, yeah, I'm not you, saying well, there's no can, subtext in it. And later can, on, they would have ideas of philosophical depth once Yoda starts mm, getting into the idea a, a little, a little of bit. overcoming what, fear and what stuff it, like what that. What it really but, dug into is the whole Joseph Campbell thing about the hero's journey. It just sort of struck this weird sort of pop culture and academic crux right at the right spot where it's kind of took a hold in terms of cinema and pop and that was kind of the first time it had reached that scale right and and of course there was a lot of technical accomplishments as well uh star wars took a lot of the things that you would see in say this flash gordon serial uh and improved upon them technologically Mm -hmm. i would argue he improved upon the writing and the characterizations and the plot as well all of that's improved as well Mm. but Beyond that, when you watch this Flash Gordon serial, one of the things mm. that you will notice 
it doesn't sound right. <laughs> now, this is back when, when you would see a movie, there was no such fucking thing as stereo. That was invented mm. by George Lucas's generation, where we're going to have, oh, so like there'll be helicopters flying by, and you'll hear it on the left side of the theater, and it'll zoom by to the right side of the theater. There's a reason why movie theaters would advertise they had music in THX. Because the director of THX 1138 was one of the people who popularized this yeah. and actually improved sound design. And Star it, Wars. Indeed, his, his sound studio ended up being called Skywalker Sound. Yeah, uh, and uh, the sound designer who he hired uh, to do Star Wars mm. uh, was Ben Burt who was at the time very young and uh, very pioneering. We just talked about him in our droids episode. Yeah, because Ben Bird actually ended up uh, developing and uh, writing quite a bit of this animated spin-off series about R2-D2 and C-3PO in the 1980s. Uh, and if you listen to that episode, it's not actually a bad show. It gets a, it gets a raw deal. It's mm, You should yeah, actually yeah. go back and check it out. Um, but uh, Star Wars... When George Lucas made Star Wars, he understood that if you want to take all of this bullshit seriously, mm -hmm. it needs to feel immersive. It needs to feel like you're there. Well, it, and, it needs to look real. Well, no, it doesn't yeah. just need to look real. It needs to sound real. Yeah. It right. needs to sound right. And back when Flash Gordon was being made, most movies didn't have a particularly rich sound effects score. Mm. You'll notice in a lot of old movies, they don't even bother foleying footsteps half the time. It's just not important. Mm -hmm. It wasn't an issue. You know, it, it, mixing probably wasn't at the point where they could actually like make that sound good all the time in the first place. So when Star Wars came along, George Lucas really made the movie not only look better than it ever had before and the spaceships look real and the action sequences look plausible and the monsters look way more real than they ever had in this mm. old Flash Gordon serial but everything sounds cool all the monster roars sound rich and wet all of the uh, stormtrooper outfits clink and clank when they run by in their armor uh, the lightsaber has a wonderful hum that makes yeah. it sound like it's constantly on like a yeah. car engine you, you go to back to the the flash gordon serials and you have some pretty if you're a little kid, that stuff is scary because there's yeah. some forced perspective. There's like some uh, miniature monsters and shadows. Yeah, there's and, a lot of monsters and shadows in caves. There's like a miniature photography. Like they put a camera really up close to like a Gila monster, and it looks yeah. like a dinosaur. Well, it helps uh, that they filmed it in slow motion as well. Yeah, so it makes yeah. it feel like it's lumbering like mm -hmm. a dinosaur. It there's still a, looks pretty stupid, but in, in, it can you can you can kind of make it work in, if you use your imagination. One of the Flash Gordon episodes, he fights this big lobster monster, oh. and. Um, in order to sort of up its scale, they sort of showed it in shadow and they shot it from long angles and they did forced perspective. So it looked like Flash Gordon was really little. And then they ha had a shot of the, the monster picking up like a little tiny doll that looked like Flash Gordon. So, yeah, it's for 1936 shoestring budget special effects. It probably looked pretty good. And again, you're now, watching it on the big screen. Nowadays, yeah. watching it on TV, even a big TV, it doesn't it's, have that big looming effect. It doesn't have that looming effect, and you know our eyes are trained to look at different sorts of things. You know, now mm -hmm. you look at something like Avengers Endgame, where 80% of that film is animated, but it looks really real. Yeah. Uh, you look at a guy in a lobster suit holding a little doll, and it looks kind of ridiculous. But so I, I maintain, think, and this is something that I think George Lucas yeah. is smart about, if you took this Flash Gordon serial, mm -hmm. all of it, and you did a top-to-bottom 
sound remix. Leave mm-hmm. everything in there, everything visual. But every time Flash Gordon hits a guy, mm-hmm. it doesn't sound like a meat slammer. It sounds like Indiana Jones when he mm-hmm. hits a guy. If you just added that, yeah, it would still be cheesy. Mm-hmm. But it would be, I think, way more absorbing as entertainment. Because it would feel like we're there. As yeah, opposed yeah. to, it feels like we're watching people in costume on a soundstage, you know, play mm-hmm. around. Yeah. So, I think well, that's something that, that they took all the stuff that's in here, mm-hmm. and a lot of it, they just lifted it completely. And they just they doc- did it technically better. Yeah, they, And it really mattered. More, more or less, they doctored it up. But um, yeah. I think an, an important thing, though, is that... If you're a little kid and you're not used to seeing monsters on screen a lot, the first time you see this shadowy lobster thing lumber out of the darkness, and also you're a little kid, your mind is a lot more open to these sorts of experiences, that actually looks great and is genuinely scary, even if it's not necessarily 100% convincing sure. or you know immersive or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's But it is going to frighten you. And I think... Uh, George Lucas probably had, as a young boy, in fact, he's admitted as such, had such a strong reaction to these things that he was trying to recreate that feeling. I feel like he's trying to but, translate it. Here's what yeah. I saw. Yeah, yeah exactly. And not exactly. necessarily what they showed me. Mm-hmm. So in my head, all of these larger-than-life things were genuinely awesome. Mm-hmm. But no one else, for whatever reason, seemed to see exactly what I saw in it. So when I make it... I'm going to make all of that stuff that you didn't see, and I'm going to put it right on camera. Now, have, have you had the experience of going back and watching, like, a beloved childhood cartoon sure. and realizing how, just, like, how lo-fi it was? Oh, my God, Thundercats. Thundercats, he I rewatched Thund- the universe. Every once in a while, I would, like, rewatch like, the opening, like, credits of Thundercats, because it's got a cool theme song, and it's just kind of, you know, nostalgic. it's got really good animation. Well, the yeah. opening credits look awesome to mm. this day. And then you watch it, and it's just like, oh, not only is this shitty, it also looks bad. Yeah, like it just uh, really was a real bummer. Uh, I had that same experience with oddly enough, Inspector Gadget. Uh, it's a, a cartoon show I really liked when I was a young lad about a you know Don Adams playing his Get Smart character more or less. Uh, but he's a cyborg and he has mechanical parts that grow out of his body, and it's like Tetsuo the Iron Man for kids. Mm. And uh, he. Uh, at the time, I recall it being like it had like thin lines and unusual character design, and I thought it looked really, really great. I went back and saw just how limited it was and how little the characters actually moved, yeah. how like annoying the dialogue and the music was, how just how shoddily put together a lot of these things were. When you're a kid, you're not really keying into quality yet because you haven't consumed a lot yet. Yeah. You're still kind of finding well, the things that you enjoy. You're not questioning because mm. there's a lot of th- you haven't like developed a sense of taste by watching mm. or reading or listening to a lot of stuff and comparing and contrasting in your mind and living enough that you start adding your own context and your own opinions and perspectives and personal experiences to it. So, if something happens in a movie that is incredibly implausible and an adult would go stupid. Mm. A kid who hasn't done any of this stuff would just go, oh, neat. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just, you're, you're again, you're a sponge. Yeah, you're just yeah. absorbing things. This is why, I mean, I don't always agree with it, but this is why people do worry about the media that we show our kids is because the kids don't necessarily know to question it yeah, or they, to say when it's bad. We don't know what kind of lessons they're taking from that. Yeah, I think, it's a, I think it's a valid concern, although mm-hmm. it, I don't think it should lead to outright censorship, of course. It's just something that we do need to have conversations about mm-hmm. because... 
well, look what happens. You show one kid, like, a whole bunch of stupid Flash Gordon serials, and all of a sudden, he changes the entire movie industry, mm. and now you can't get a non-blockbuster made. You I'm should. kidding, of course. I like Star Wars. You show a lot of kids a bunch of uh, Transformers cartoons, and they grow up and make Transformers movies. Yeah? Well... That hurt my face. And again, I feel like when... I feel like when... First off, I don't feel like Michael Bay grew up with Transformers. He grew up with uh, ACDC music. That's my thing. I don't think he has the connection to Transformers, like an emotional connection to Transformers. Mm. And when he makes a movie about Transformers, he's making it as, I'm going to make some badass movies with robots in it. Mm. But then, I mean, I don't know if Travis Knight grew up with Transformers, but when you watch Bumblebee... Mm. It's a different perspective, and I think he's looking at well, where's the where's the heart in where's this? the heart yeah. in this storyline, and that's the yeah. movie that actually has that, which is why a lot of the films that would come out after Star Wars that weren't based on things that people loved necessarily somewhere, mm. but a lot of them weren't. Mm. A lot of them were just oh, Star Wars was a hit. Let's do a Star Wars. Mm. And there's a lot of people who didn't have an affinity for it, didn't have an affection for it, didn't understand imitating elements from Star Wars and didn't understand what George Lucas did to the genre that made people excited about it and swarm to it Mm -hmm. and embrace it. And some of those ripoffs are really good and I mm. like them, but some of them just are just clunky and bad. Uh, But here's the irony here. You're talking about how George Lucas brought a lot of heart because he had a lot of affection for these old Flash Gordon serials. These old Flash Gordon serials don't have that warmth. I know. Uh, Flash Gordon himself is a cardboard cutout. He's played by a bodybuilder. Well, uh, that doesn't that doesn't necessarily make him may, a bad actor. Maybe, may, but I like, suppose not, but they did not hire an actor, is my point. Is, no, uh, Buster play, Crab is not the greatest actor of no. his generation. I think that's fair to say. He's a handsome, muscular bloke. Uh, yeah. There's a reason, you know, he's... he's a, cuts a fine figure. Cu- yeah, cuts a fine... He's a, he's a sex symbol par excellence, but... Not really a very... Flash Gordon's not a warm character, and I think the serials are all about the action, of course. The characters are always in peril. There's not really a lot of time for them to sort of stop and just have a conversation. Maybe there's a scene where Dale is kidnapped by uh, the Lord of the... Vulture Man or whoever the it was. Man. The Hawkman. She's kidnapped by uh, everybody. Like, everybody... Yeah, yeah. What happens... But there's there's a scene where she's yeah. just sort of locked up in the throne room, and this guy's, like, sort of threatening her. He's essentially threatening her with sexual assault. And, yeah. And uh, it's kind of laughing at her misery, and she's just sort of, you know, rolling her eyes, saying, oh, what a dick. And I saw a lot of Princess Leia in her, in fact, because uh, she, she's not letting a lot of this really shake her. Yeah. But uh, because they're always in such peril, we don't get a lot of sort of warmth and camaraderie all we get is the thrill of an action-packed victory well that's something that i actually think is really worth noting Mm. because star wars isn't a very sexy movie series there there are elements where people look very dashing or women look very attractive uh you know a lot we've already mentioned it but a lot of people uh are very fond of the image of carrie fisher in a gold bikini Mm -hmm. perhaps missing the context of that scene in which the only person who would put her in that bikini is a vile misogynistic evil slug monster who she then strangles to death (laughs) literally a slug with the chain he would use to bind her so a little a little credit for that. Mm. Um, so like if you're ogling Carrie Fisher in that, you are completely missing the point. Mm. Um, but uh, these Flash Gordon serials actually have a much greater emphasis on 
romance and even marriage mm. than Star Wars. Flash Gordon, every single ruler that Dale Arden is a Dale Arden? Dale Arden. Dale Arden meets immediately wants to marry her. Like mm. being the merciless, like, and then I'm going to marry you today. And then well, that was even <laughs> something they did in the 1980 Flash Gordon feature film. Yeah, and the King of the Hawkmen is like, ha, 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 I'm going to marry you today. Boy, when they cast Brian Blessed in the, <laughs> in the movie from like 1980, boy, did they cast yeah. the right guy. He's oh, yeah. exactly this original guy, mm. but better. I'll, I'll, I'll say this, I. I per- personally, I derive a lot more enjoyment from that Mike Hodges 1980 film than I do from Star Wars. Okay. And I think it's because of that kind of sexed up attitude. The, yeah. The, the it's character, kinky. It's a little that kinky. That kinky. The, 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 the main, you know, Ming the Merciless is a much more fun, campy villain than mm-hmm. somebody wearing a mask like Darth Vader. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Played by the great Max von Sydow. Max, the yeah, late, the, great, the Max late great Max von Sydow. And, um. Yeah, and Brian Blessed is in it, and yeah. Timothy Dalton is in it, and yeah, Richard uh, uh, um, Richard O'Brien from Rocky Horror Picture right. Show is so, in it. So the, like, there's great cast. there's a lot of glitz and glamour, and yeah. I feel like the characters do have a lot more uh, relatable human qualities in Flash Gordon. Yeah, whereas in Star Wars, because it is hearkening back to something like Flash Gordon, the Flash Gordon serials, right, uh, is taking a little bit of the sort of bold, brazen, deliberately kind of shallow archetypes that uh, in many ways, I think, keep us a little bit at arm's length. Now, George Lucas is adding a lot of heart. And I remember the, uh, the most recent time I saw Star Wars, which is actually like a couple of years ago at this point, there's a shot We've of... We've both seen it many times. If anyone's just like, do these guys know about Star Wars? We've seen Star Wars a lot. I've seen Star Wars a couple times. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> there, there's a shot of Luke's... I, I don't know a lot of the details, so, you know, I, He's, I apologize. Whitney is not a Star Wars yeah. master, and I am hardly yeah. going to win I the Star if, Wars schmodown anytime soon. If, if I don't know what a Wedge Antilles is, you know, I apologize oh, for that. Oh, you but. just hurt my face feelings but <laughs> actually like Wedge Antilles a lot but uh, my, my, my point but is this the show is not so much about the minutiae of Star Wars it's about what inspired what, Star Wars what inspired Star but there was a scene in Star Wars where uh, Luke Skywalker uh, I think like his family was just murdered and there's yeah. a shot of him just sort of out in the middle of the desert and he's just looking at the sky and you hear the big score. And oh, that's actually before a, they die. Oh, it's before they die. But yeah, yeah there's that's a sort him, of, that's him a thinking sort of one of these longing. days and, you know, there are, one of these days I will leave this yeah. desert planet. One of these yeah. days I will leave this farm and go on an adventure and John Williams' music swells and I'm mm. so glad it swells because otherwise it would just be a boring shot of a guy in a desert. It's <laughs> just a boring shot of like, yep, sundown again, just mm. like every other fucking day. Well, better go clean the droids like it means nothing without john williams's music no. like at all uh, which is another thing that really is but uh, better than in the flash yeah, Gordon uh, serials. george lucas was wise enough to add little scenes like that that added you know bits like little bits and pieces of oh, genuine humanity yeah. to a character like luke skywalker who in that first film at the very least is not a terribly nuanced character well again i think this is something that's really interesting when people sort of reject Hmm. The movie version of Flash Gordon, the one that came out after Star yeah. Wars, which is a delight, and I highly recommend hmm. you see it and enjoy it on this free-spirited, freewheeling, we're all going to have a really good, sexy, funny, silly time. That's hmm. the spirit in which it was made. That's the spirit in which the original Flash Gordon was made. When F- Star Wars came out, and everyone was trying to replicate the success of Star Wars, uh, the people who actually even went back... To the originals and thought, okay, well, how can we make this Flash Gordon thing into a hit like Star Wars? They still didn't see what George Lucas saw. George mm. Lucas took this 
dead seriously mm. to the extent that when you watch this early serial, you're just like, how did he take this seriously? There's not yeah, much here. Exactly, but, exactly. But he did. It meant yeah. something to him, and he inserted real uh, an he inserted, attempt at, at pathos. Yeah. Well, and, and I think this this reveals something about the way we consume kids uh, films well, as kids. Exactly, and yeah. adults mm. made Flash Gordon. Mm. Adults saw this opportunity. Oh, we're just going to fuck around in space mm. and uh, uh, you know have some fun and shoot things with lasers, and we'll get Queen to do the soundtrack. That'll be badass. Those are decisions that adults make to have fun mm. in this environment. And I felt like they're having fun. Uh, yeah, it, it, I, think, I think George Lucas is too, but he takes mm. it dead seriously mm. as well. Um, but anyway, my point was going back. Flash Gordon, because it is very much inspired not by Flash Gordon, but by sort of fairy tales mm-hmm. in a lot and, of regards. And, has and, a, and Edgar Rice Burroughs. And Edgar Rice Burroughs, who is also inspired by fairy tales. Uh, there is a lot of emphasis on romance. Mm-hmm. Uh, Flash Gordon pretty well, much instantly well, falls in love with Dale Arden. Everyone well, who meets Dale Arden and, immediately falls in love with them. Yeah. Ming the Merciless's uh, princess daughter falls yeah. in love with Flash and is constantly trying to betray her father because she's so in love with Flash and then trying to kill Dale Arden so that she can be uh, Flash Gordon's one true love. That's an interesting character we don't have any real <laughs> uh, allegory for or uh, analog, a, analog yeah. for in, uh, in Star Wars. Um, and it's interesting because in I was watching this serial and I was just like, why is everyone immediately not just interested in Dale Arden, not just attracted to Dale Arden, but needs to marry her today? And I realized the reason. There's only two women on this whole planet. <laughs> one of them is Ming the Merciless's daughter, and she was the only one <laughs> until until Dale showed up. And in Star Wars there aren't a lot of women initially. Mm. It's, there's there's well, Luke's aunt who dies mm. immediately after like one and a half scenes. Uh, there's Princess Leia, mm. uh, and uh, then later on we get Mon Mothma. But that was kind of it for the original well, trilogy. And she she's just like sort of this boring admiral type character. Yeah, she she gives exposition. Yeah. She she's got a vaunted position of authority and good for her. But that's all she gets in both Return of the Jedi and the only other movie in which we see her, Rogue One. Oh, yeah, she really yeah. doesn't have any character to speak of. George mm-hmm. Lucas, mm-hmm. F- for all of the great things he did in Star Wars, wasn't super interested in his female well, characters. He was, it's not just that he wasn't interested in his female characters, and this is something That's that no a lot slight of, on Leia. I think Leia is a great character. Uh, and that, Do and not get me wrong, but it's a very... I think uh, I think Carrie Fisher is a great character. I think uh, <laughs> Carrie Fisher brought a lot of personality to a, yeah, but, a, a kind of an underwritten character. But if but, you look um, at the character, she stands up to authority the first mm-hmm. time you see her. She stands up to torture. Mm-hmm. She, she uh, as soon as they get her out of her cell, she basically rescues herself. Yeah. Once she's on, uh, uh, once they're on the Death Star run, she assumes a position of rel- like a, a command position. Mm-hmm. She's not the only person in command, but she's one of them. She is, and I'm. I'm actually really glad that the new trilogy referred to her as this. They refer to her as general. Yeah, she she got a military rank. At yeah, some she's point. not a prince. Her uh, planet's gone. She's a general. That's, well, and she uh, earned that. I, I think it's. Uh, but she's the only female character to speak of until that. You know, George Lucas. He's a guy. He's yeah. you know writing a guy story. He's writing a little yeah. boy story. Is what he's doing. And yeah. um, I remember Carrie you, Fisher should, talking about how um, she was complaining about how apparently in space. Uh, they don't have bras. Oh, yeah, George according. Lucas was very adamant about this. It's like, oh, they don't—they don't wear bras, and and she like just like bullshit. She's like nineteen years old. Bullshit, George. Yeah, fuck you, George. Uh, uh, <laughs> she's the Florence Pugh of her day. Uh, but uh, he would have been a good layoff. 
If they rebooted oh, yeah. Star Wars now, I would totally cast Lawrence Cast Lawrence Pugh, Pugh as Leia, Leia yeah. Uh, but, you know, we're looking at, at 1936. This was uh, right before the Hayes Code. Uh, so there were still, like, a no, lot of... No, I think of... the Hayes Code popped in. What? It was, it was new. The Hayes Code was 37, wasn't it? Um, I might be getting my dates yeah. right. Well, it, it was around the time of the Hayes Code, but there yeah. was still, uh, you know, some some risque things going on in cinema. And yeah, and Flash Gordon, the women's yeah. costumes are very revealing, provocative. And, yeah. and in the follow up ser- uh, Flash Gordon serials, less so. They yeah, but had complaints. But let's you know, let's go back to these these influences. We we'll go back to Edgar Rice Burroughs. Let's look at Deja Thoris. She's pre- she's pretty much naked. She's in a yeah. gold gold bikini. She wears jewelry. Mm-hmm. Uh, also a princess. Also badass. Mm-hmm. Fights. Protects herself. And she's she's sexualized but she is a, a confident character she she's we can look at that now and say she's a confident character but we can also look back and say that she was pretty much just a sexual fantasy for the author fair which, enough which, but which I, she's I, not a I demure think, sexual fantasy no, she's a badass sexual she's fantasy. a badass sexual for fantasy for whatever that's but, worth yeah. it might not be worth anything but yeah, for it's, whatever it's worth that's true um and the people who are reading Edgar Rice Burroughs are making the, the Buck Rogers comics. They're making the Flash Gordon comics. They're making the Flash Gordon shorts. There's sex throughout all of these things. Uh, by the time we got to cinema, you know, we can't actually just show you just boobs on screen. But there's there's sexual elements, and all the people see Dale and is like, yeah, I want to get in there. Dale Arden is the most gorgeous woman I've ever seen. She's the only one I've ever seen, but she's gorgeous. And I want to marry her. <laughs> And I and th- this and this is another thing. Like George Lucas is watching this, he's probably watching this as a prepubescent little boy, he's a kid, yeah. so he's not picking up on a lot of the sexual or romantic stuff. But he is kind of absorbing he, it. He's absorbing it, but he's clearly not interested in it. Otherwise, he would have written it into Star Wars. Yeah. And in fact, this is a big. The only uh, kiss in the original Star Wars is for luck. Yeah. The the. Uh, there's, there's no, not really a romance. You could might say there's some romantic tension between like, some of the characters. Like Luke is but, clearly attracted to Leia, and Han Solo has like a Bickerson relationship mm-hmm. with her, but that's it. It's not until mm-hmm. Empire that there's any real talk of romance. And, well, and even then, it's a subplot at most. It, it's a subplot, and they bicker and they bicker until, and then at the end, it's like, oh, well, I, I, I loved you this whole time. R- really? I'd love to see some passion before <laughs> this, you know, like humanity with some blood in your veins. And this, this has actually been a uh, a big complaint about the, especially the new Star Wars films, how these mm-hmm. characters are all frustratingly sexless. Yeah. Just because, uh, and even, now, even when it seems like they have a ton of sexual chemistry, like Finn and Poe, like mm. you guys should be making out. Get, yeah. Let's just, kill, and I think kill. they wanted to, you can tell in interviews that like Oscar Isaac was just like, yeah, I would have done it. We were, that was what we were getting at. I don't know. It's weird that we didn't go there. But uh, the, yeah, it, the one it, that bugged it, me was we've in been, the prequels. We've been stretching the original tradition of Star Wars itself for right. so long that we're keeping well, that sexlessness intact, even though it doesn't to, make sense anymore. I want you to think uh, about the way. Well, the, could, the, could, I, could I finish my thought okay, first? Okay, yeah. but I do want to yeah. keep my. I keep getting sidetracked. You go ahead. Yeah, but uh, no, just the idea that there's all the sex in the original Flash Gordon from the 1930s, and when you're a little boy, you're translating that sexlessness into something new. So, yeah, you're getting into this new universe where there's no sex any longer. And as such, when I'm looking at the characters in the original Flash Gordon and the 1980 Flash Gordon, I'm seeing some people that are kind of, they want to get it on. Yeah. And I can relate to those people maybe a little bit more strongly than all of the people throughout Star Wars who, okay, maybe they kiss. Maybe there's that really strong... Stupid love story in episode two. I was. I'm trying but, to get uh, to that because I right. think that really talks to a lot of what you're talking it, it about. Ta- right? It talks to a lot of what I'm talking about because it's done so badly. I agree. See, here's <laughs> here's the deal. All of Star Wars, uh-huh. on some level, mm. 
is about, or at least it was supposed to be, once we started telling these prequels and telling the story of the fall of Anakin Skywalker, the rise and fall, if you will, mm-hmm. um, George Lucas decides to make the centerpiece of the fall of Anakin Skywalker and the rise of Darth Vader. Mm. Not a man who's mad for power. He wants it, but why does he want it? He wants it to protect the person he loves. I think, in George Lucas's head at least, I don't think it plays very well, but on a plot level, uh, the prequel trilogy is a love story. It is a love story mm. between Anakin uh, Skywalker uh, uh, and Pat- on the page. Yes. No, on yeah, on the page, and and uh. here's why I think for so many people, myself included, it flunks out. Mm. Um, it's it it is kind of passionless, and I think part of that is because again, you talk about how George Lucas is seeing all this stuff from the perspective of a very little kid. Mm-hmm. Who is Anakin Skywalker when we meet him in the Phantom Menace? A very little kid, mm. a very bright, you know, affable. Talented, promising mm-hmm. kid. Yeah, he's he's a supporting character in that first movie. Yeah, he's but in, just but yeah, but, yeah he, but just a little kid. Mm-hmm. And when he meets Padme, played already by Natalie Portman, she's significantly older than him. Mm-hmm. He thinks she's pretty. He t- he compares her to an angel, which mm-hmm. live on the moons of blue. Do you see him hitting on the queen, though he's just nine and she's fourteen? Yeah, thank you, Weird Al. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. And, and by the way, she's a very old 14 in that mm. movie. She doesn't play 14 at all. Um, yeah, that doesn't feel romantic. That's like a nine-year-old who kind of has a crush on his babysitter and doesn't know why vibe. Mm-hmm. So in Attack of the Clones, when they reunite and Anakin has grown kind of hunky, mm. it's already weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's not yeah. it doesn't read as romantic it doesn't read mm. as passionate and when he starts coming on to her and he's not supposed to for a wide variety of reasons not the least of which is the last time I saw you you were nine this is creepy but also you're a priest now for mm. all intents and purposes and you're not supposed to be sleeping with anybody I'm a senator there's a ton of conspiracy shit going on and I'm very distracted <laughs> right now and okay yeah of all the places where we could hide out and go to the mattresses, we went to essentially the sci-fi version of the chalet from Call Me By Your Name, <laughs> where everything is perfect and wonderful delicious and, and wonderful sexy. and romantic. And, yeah. But all you can think to say is stupid bullshit. Why? You're stunted. Mm-hmm. Anakin Skywalker is emotionally and at least sexually stunted. He is not on her level. She mm. has lived and experienced things, and she is trying to explain to him basic common sense about why fascism is bad, and he's just like, well, I think it's great. Mm. And she's like, okay, that's not a red flag. Yeah. And then when they go to visit his mom, and his mom has been kidnapped, and he's and like... He and murders people yeah, and I don't. Children. He doesn't just yeah. kill the person. It would be bad enough. It would at least be, like, a, a step towards the dark side if any Jedi killed anyone <laughs> That mm. wasn't like by accident or to a, save a life. Murder is but a step. You'd think that would be the final thing you'd have well, to I'm do. Well, I'm just saying, yeah. like you know, like like um, like Obi Wan Kenobi kills Darth Maul. Yeah, he ended up being alive later, mm. but for all we knew, he killed him. It was a fight to the death. Mm. So I think that's forgivable. I think that's you know, no jury in the world would convict him. But a Jedi is way op. Over any of the Sand People, any of the Tusken Raiders, where it's just like, yeah, I have the power of a god and a laser sword, and yeah, you kidnapped my mom, so I'm just going to murder you. You mm-hmm. had no hope. 
Mm. There was never a fight. And uh, then I'm going to murder everyone you've ever known. And then I'm going to murder everyone they married. I'm going to murder all of their little kids. And, um, I don't know, I'll I'll murder their banthas. Like, he's just killing everyone at that point. And that's his emotional reaction. And again, yeah, it's an extreme situation. I get it. And in a lot of movies, I would be... Well, actually, it wouldn't be sympathetic once you start killing everyone they've ever known and their kids. But I would be like, well, okay, you're, you're, well, I can see Charles Bronson doing that. I can yeah, see Clint Eastwood doing that. Becoming an anti-hero is like Scarface yeah. or but something. When, but, yeah. but when this kid, who's like, I don't know how old he's supposed to be, like 17 in that movie or something. When this kid goes to this person who, okay, I think you're hot and I admit I'm a little conflicted by this, but I still think we shouldn't be together. And then you come to me and said, you just murdered a lot of children. And... Yeah, we can get married. <laughs> I don't buy any of that. There's yeah, no yeah. romantic well, reality, mm. even in a fantasy realm. And that's something that I think holds Star Wars back, especially in the prequels, where yeah, if that romance well, doesn't work, Darth Vader doesn't mm, work. Yeah, yeah, there there are moments of a, a lot of heart and, and camar- camaraderie, I've said it before, yeah. between a lot of the characters in Star Wars. And that's, what, that that's what makes it stand above something like the 1936 Flash Gordon, which, yeah. you know, is you know, the child of. And but it it still it still doesn't feel fully human to me because of that lack of romance uh-huh. and you know I've, I've, it doesn't I've seen, feel lived in yeah, it doesn't I've, feel I've natural as, as natural as like the atmospheres and the settings are and as natural as you know the people just sort of have casual banter with creatures that don't speak English uh, <laughs> it's like no no I said the other thing okay fine I'll get you a beer you know whatever it is hanging out uh, with big hairy animal people also from the Flash Gordon series that's right. Yeah, I, I. What's his name? I am Var- Varlin, King of the Lion Men. Something like that. Yeah, I, I love that because he repeats that line like four or five times. <laughs> he looks like an old prospector character who just like climbed out of a mine. Yeah, like I haven't seen a person in twelve years, but I found gold. <laughs> Something, no. something I really appreciate about the you know, these guys. I am the Lion Men. They're supposed to, and and even Buster Crab. They're supposed to be sort of you know exemplary masculine figures, larger and, than life. And you know Buster Crab, he's a bodybuilder. He's got an excellent physique. These other guys are just big around the midsection. <laughs> They're all like kind of barrel shaped. Well, barrel shaped was what bodybuilders yeah, looked exactly, like at the time. Exactly. This idea of the, like perfecting physical tone hadn't really been yeah, the, popularized. The, the sort of, yeah, and, mu- muscle definition wasn't really part of what a bo- bodybuilder looked like. It was about getting bigger, uh, yeah. you know, large. You look at sort of strong men in old, well, old circus shorts. Well, and, look at, just look at what uh, uh, Superman looked like in his early appearances. Yeah, was, he, was he was a big he, barrel chested wrestler. He was a bodybuilder. He even wore yeah. those little trunks. That was like yeah. a, a bodybuilder or a wrestler. Yeah, that's and why the, superheroes wore those trunks that's what bodybuilders were that yeah, indicated and, and, that they were strong and in feed in fact if you look at some bodybuilders and weightlifters who are like on the side circus sideshow they also wear the capes that's what there was about theatricality yeah. Yeah. um I, I wish someone would make a super uh superman feature film where it's not just sort of like oh this is the uniform of my home planet no jazz that up give him golden brass <laughs> give him chains make him look like a, a circus sideshow put like the trunks back give him bigger boots wasn't it, correct me if i'm wrong it's been a while since i've seen uh, uh, the richard donner superman but did they isn't there like 
like a version of it where they explain that's just like, yeah, okay, the S came with you and yeah, maybe the cape, was... but everything else was just me. My mom made this for me. Like, uh, I no, feel like there's the, a version of that. The whole outfit from the Donner film was like a, a from his home planet. Was it okay? Yeah. There's some version of like Superman yeah, where it, his mom made it. If for you him, remember, basically. Brando had the ass as well when he yeah. was back on. No, no, Krypton, the, the ass yeah. has long been established as the mm. symbol of like his family crest, basically. Yeah, which, which is something that the Donner film introduced to Superman. Did they introduce that? Yep. Is that what it wasn't was wasn't in the oh, comics shit. before that. Okay. Well, in any case, mm. th- that's actually fine. I'm mm. I'm fine with that. Um. I digress. Anyway, Flesh Gordon. Um, <laughs> anyway, we didn't really talk a lot about the plot because it's crazy and weird. It's, it's crazy and weird, and and it's just a, a series of miniature well, episodes I where wanted... people get into uh, you know get into scrapes and get uh-huh. out again. Uh, yeah, we we already sort of sketched out the generals that uh, mm-hmm. you know, Ming is in charge of all of this. Mm-hmm. There's some. They're not his lieutenants, but there are some people who are trying to placate him and sort of bring him things. So they they turn turncoat on our heroes. Uh, there are some that are kidnapped. trying. To, uh, there are some that are oppressed and are actually trying to bring down Ming, and they team up with our heroes. Uh, uh, towards the end, hmm. like because it, it, originally it's like okay, so we're, we piss off Ming the Merciless. Ming tries to kill Flash. Ming tries to marry Dale. Flash saves Dale. The princess saves Flash. They fight a monster. They end up with the Shark Men. They mm. fight the Shark Men. Flash almost drowns and fights an Octosack, which is a fun name. Uh, <laughs> That's right. And then they get kidnapped by the Hawkman, and then they go to the Cloud City, which mm. is run by a guy who has betrayed them to the evil Emperor, but then he becomes their friend. <coughs> Empire Strikes Back. Um, and uh, then they... Uh, it, it seems like everything's going to be okay for a while. And then there's this bit where they hit, like critical mass it's almost like that first season of 24 mm-hmm. where like they <laughs> wow we didn't actually think we'd get this far mm-hmm. um how do, we, how do we wrap this what all do we up do? Well, they, don't, they don't even wrap it up fast it's just like we have time to fill which is why like when in 24 when all of a sudden like jack bauer's wife gets amnesia it feels really contrived, contrived. which is why contrived. in this serial when flash gordon basically gets amnesia and, like, forgets yeah. he was ever in love with Dale. It feels really contrived. And then there's this whole bit where Flash becomes invisible, which is just doesn't well, need... It's cute and all, but it doesn't need to be there. <laughs> like, at this point, it's just like, we're done. Like, you kind of saved the day. You saved Earth a while ago. Mm. You're not home yet. It's basically just, we're not home yet. Dr. Zarkov hasn't figured out a way to get us home yet. And while we're waiting, Ming tries to kill us a couple more times. Mm. It's fast-paced. And I, I actually really like the way that George Lucas took the breathless quality from this and applied it to the Star Wars movies and Indiana Jones, where if you actually... I'm sure in the script it was probably pretty solid. Like, about every seven or ten pages, you hit a big action sequence. You're never never far away from a major plot point, from a major life-or-death fiasco, from a major revelation, from a major plot point. Even if you have those moments of humanity... We got to keep this thing moving. Yeah, we got to keep, and I think this kind of breathless pacing, which was common in Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. not the movie which hadn't come out yet, but the actual Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. uh, of which Flash Gordon is at least a tangential part as a comic strip from the 1930s. Um, in movies, that wasn't necessarily the case, and if you watch like action movies, what was considered an action movie mm-hmm. before Star Wars came out. 
there's a lot of downtime in a lot of those early James Bond. Those early James Bond movies, mm-hmm. they're pretty slow in places. Yeah. There's there's Our, basically just a travel log sometimes. Oh, isn't Turkey pretty? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Aren't you trying to like rescue someone from Russia? What's going on? Uh, like, the, the, uh, George Lucas kept it going. <laughs> yeah, it kept it going. Well, he kept it going until he didn't. And uh, yeah. if if you sort of look at some sort of his later films, uh, especially the later Star Wars films, yeah. how uh, and this this even started. I mean, it started with the holiday special, but um, which is takes a lot more influence from something like Circus of the Stars than it does yeah. uh, Flash Gordon. But uh, The Empire Strikes Back, of course, is a sequel. It's the next uh, chapter in this Star Wars serial. But all of the Flash Gordon stuff is gone from The Empire Strikes Back. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you can see some of the influences, like some things from this early Flash Gordon serial that, like, some iconography, some characters, some scenarios. Uh, like, uh, there's the scene where he's in an ice cave with a Yeti. That's something that, that you might find in a, a Flash Gordon serial. But the tone is so different now. Everything is actually a lot more, um, like, subdued and downbeat in, in uh, The Empire Strikes Back. And you can see that The Empire Strikes Back is taking all of its influence from Star Wars, mm-hmm. it's the first time this happened. Now, oh, well, I mean, it, it, I don't uh, think that's necessary. Maybe not. That's it's not, not the no, first that's thing actually not true. It's not the first time it happened. There were a lot of people who were also trying to imitate Star Wars, but I feel like a lot of those, this sort of exciting, keep everything moving. Let's keep it in this sort of episodic structure. Uh-huh. Let's keep these characters really sort of broad and brazen. Uh, is now turning a lot more intimate. And it's, of, I, and it's focus, no. and it's focusing, sure a, and it's focusing a lot more. It's changing. It's like redefining the the importance of these characters as they pertain to the fabric of this story. Yeah. And by the time we got to uh, Return of the Jedi, everything was super commercialized anyway. So <laughs> I actually so, I'm it, fight so you on this this, this whole this influence totally that 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 Flash Gordon had on Star Wars, I think, vanished as soon as Star Wars ended. No, I disagree. I think uh, it kept going pretty strong mm. through the Phantom Menace. Here's. I think when you're looking, I think, at, I think they tried to tried to bring it back from the Phantom Menace, very unsuccessful. Well, I think especially the opening is very breathless in Phantom Menace. Mm-hmm. We're doing this thing. We're attacked by droids. We come down here. We're mm-hmm. almost run over by giant machinery. Now we're under sea. Now we're yeah, under sea. We're fighting yeah. monsters, and now we're rescuing a princess. The opening chunk mm-hmm. of Phantom Menace is very Flash Gordon. I disagree with you about Empire. Okay. I kind of agree with you about Return of the Jedi. I disagree with you about Empire. Empire takes the the now that we've established the characters and the framework, mm-hmm. they're able to be a little bit more loosey goosey with structure. I'll grant you that, but I actually think the breathlessness and the episodicness is all there. What what happens at the beginning of the Empire Strikes Back? Uh, Luke is riding around on his tauntaun and he's attacked by a giant snowman. Yeah. Okay, so boom. That's mm-hmm. that. Uh, he has to be rescued by Han Solo so they don't freeze to death. Then there's a giant battle. Then they all mm-hmm. escape. The Millennium Falcon, like, is almost, is like, lands on an asteroid, is like going through an asteroid chase, lands on an asteroid, almost gets eaten by a monster. A ton of shit is happening. Mm-hmm. That whole sequence in the Cloud City is taken directly from Flash Gordon. All those reversals, all those betrayals, that's totally Flash Gordon. Uh, okay. And the, where it stops, mm-hmm. and I'll grant you this, is on Dagobah. On Dagobah, that's where things that's, slow that's down. That's the Yoda planet. Yeah, yeah, that's where things slow down. That's where things get moody mm. and thoughtful. Your mileage might vary in how effective mm. it is. That is the chunk of it that's George Lucas saying, okay, I kind of want to do my own thing. Yeah. And, well, which, and, which is ironic because he didn't do that movie. Well, he you know what I mean? He, was, that he movie, produced but, it. Mm. And a lot of it was his ideas. He was, per, he was pushing it mm. in this direction. Um, and... Uh, 
Yeah, so I think that's why it feels oh, yeah. that way. But actually, all of the Han and Leia stuff, that's all that breathless shit. It's the well, Luke I'm, stuff I'm, in the middle only I, I, that changes the, the, the structure. I, 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 I disagree. I disagree that it's it's as breathless as you're saying it is. Because I'm, I'm, watching, I'm thinking of the early scenes of The Empire Strikes Back. Okay. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, moments of a lot of quiet and a lot of sort of contemplative moments when he's trapped in the cave with the Yeti monster. Uh-huh. He's not in the cave. It's not like this thrilling escape. It, it's actually like this moment of genuine danger where he's really grievously yeah. injured. And, you know, he's finally using his You're supposed to worry that Flash time. Gordon is going to get eaten by the lobster monster. You know but, that, right? The, like, it's translating that. I, I understand that. But, you know, there's just still this idea that it's just going to... We're here to see his thrilling escape, not him in genuine peril. And I feel like there's a little bit too much, forgive me for saying this, genuineness in something like The Empire Strikes Back... <laughs> That is to, a bold to, statement. To, uh, well, the, and this is actually sort of a complaint I have. I feel like uh, Star Wars is the 1977 film is drawing on these like longer cinematic traditions. It's taking a lot of the fabric of traditional cinema and a lot of things that have been sort of floating in the cinematic consciousness mm-hmm. and sifting them all together yeah. and, and sort of cobbling them into this platonic ideal of those things. Yes. The Empire Strikes Back... Is, is just putting all of that and just sort of funneling it into a, a thinner line. I see where you're coming from mm-hmm. here. I do, because I think with Empire... Star Wars... I, I talked about James Bond being a sightseeing tour. Mm. Star Wars is, too. Star Wars takes you everywhere. We start mm. in a spaceship, we go to a desert planet, we go to the coolest bar since Rick's from Casablanca, which mm. we should also cover here. Um, <laughs> uh, we go to Death Stars, we blow up planets, we go to this forest planet, we do this awesome trench run, which is from the Dam Busters, which we will definitely cover on this podcast. Um, it's a constant state of discovery. Yeah. That's yeah. what you get from the original Star Wars. And I would actually feel, I actually argue that although the pacing is a little different, and I think that's just what you get from having a different director. Mm. Um, the pacing I, and the tone is what the, I'm talking the, okay, about mostly. But, 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 yeah. but, but, okay, the pacing is different. And I think that affects the tone. Mm. The tone is a little darker because George Lucas has successfully pulled off the magic trick, and we do take this seriously now. So there's a little bit of freedom to take a little bit more seriously. Um, But uh, I do feel like there is this sense of extempore that persists in The Empire Strikes Back, where there is a constantly... Again, we... Snow monsters, giant elephant tanks. We've got uh, giant monster worm monsters in space eating spaceships. We've mm-hmm. got uh, little alien puppets that are giving like one of the best performances of the 1980s. <laughs> All right, we've got then those little puppets can lift a whole spaceship. We never knew the force could do that. We never saw the force fucking do that. Mm-hmm. These are all new things. We've got uh, caves of wonder that show you your your greatest fears. We've got floating cities in the clouds. Mm-hmm. We've got a big old. We got Han Solo frozen in carbonite and taken off by a bounty hunter and that's not resolved we've got a ton of exploratory discovery shit we've got and that persists in jedi through jabba's palace yeah through jabba's palace that's still new we've never seen that before and there's a lot of really cool monsters a lot of really cool monsters Um, there's there's fighting monsters in basements and there's all these there's crazy shit that that happens first part of of jedi has that flash gordon feeling yeah and then i agree with you 
that after the Jabba's Pal mm-hmm. spit, that's when Return of the Jedi just settles down to, all right, let's just finish this fucking let's, thing. We'll let's introduce just one more. Star Wars we'll introduce stuff, yeah. the, the little bear monsters, yeah, well, and that's it. Like, otherwise, well, nothing new. What I'm, descri- well, the Emperor, uh, what I'm guess, describing but... is a, a movie from the 1970s that was clearly influenced by decades-old entertainment from the yeah. 1930s, and how the sequel to it was only influenced by Star Wars. I disagree with that, and um, we're going to talk about a lot of the films that influenced that movie. <laughs> yeah, but, but uh, I feel... Flash Gordon isn't one of those things. Well, Flash Gordon is maybe less pervasive an influence. It's, where, it's where Star less Wars, now. I would argue that's first off, I don't think that's necessarily the worst thing in the world. I think Star Wars leans really heavily. Star Wars, the New Hope, a New Hope, mm. leans really, really heavily on Flash Gordon. Mm. Empire, less so. Mm. There's worse sins. I I, I don't a, consider that an inherently bad thing. It's okay I, I for my a, point and, is and the last my, Jedi is my, based on wings and yeah, shit. My, you know? my, like, my point is uh, this this idea of you know Star Wars d- deriving a lot of these influences uh, stopped at, at some point, and that it, well, it, it you know we're the influences talking, changed. The, the influences are now something different. Yeah, agreed. And and Star Wars turned into something very different very quickly. I don't think it's my only argument is I I don't think think it's quite as quickly as you're saying. I think Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back are incredibly different movies. I I agree with that. Everybody says, oh, we're exploring the same characters. No, these are kind of new versions of the characters. I don't think that's These are sort of like a a little bit more like hard-edged, more adult versions of the characters. Hang on a second, because, again, Mm. Star Wars we pick up in Medius Medius Res. Mm. Empire, we do I'm as well. I'm not talking about structure. I'm not talking about it either. (laughs) I'm talking, you gotta, you gotta let me finish the thought. All right. Star Wars, we start everything in Medias Res, mm. okay? We missed a whole bunch of stuff. We're just picking up the characters wherever they are right now. Yeah. Empire doesn't take place the next day. Mm. Empire, I think like a couple of years have passed. They've changed a bit. We're still in Medias Res. We're, it's, we're picking up with them now. Mm. I actually forget how much time has passed. But it's it's not right away. It's been a bit. They've had some adventures in the middle that they talk about. Mm. They're not the same characters. They've been through more. They're more tightly knit. They've. Yeah. I'm saying. Okay, I don't that's, think that's that's, that, that's f- look. When you're writing a sequel and when you're writing screenplays, that's all fine and fair and a good way to write a sequel. Agreed. But that's not a good way to write a Flash Gordon serial. And I don't think it needs to always be the same Flash Gordon and serial. That's my point. It's not Flash Gordon anymore. <laughs> I, I think Flash Gordon still maintains a certain level of influence, but I agree with you. Mm. Less so yeah, than yeah. the first film. I think it really picks up again at the end of Empire, where they're just doing the Hawkman sequence. Mm. I think it picks up a little bit of Jabba's Palace. I think a big chunk of Phantom Menace yeah. is, is definitely Flash Gordon. I think there are elements of Attack of the Clones that feel very Flash Gordon. The Gladiator Arena. The, yeah, the, yeah, all yeah. of these sort of weird asides that don't mean anything. Like, oh, now the droids are in this droid manufacturing plant. Mm. I don't actually give a shit, but it's fun. Yeah, like, that feels the, Flash Gordon By the time we get to a lot of those, it, it starts to feel... Yeah. Again, it feels like a more of a contrivance yeah. rather than something that was inspired by a genuine enthusiasm for Flash Gordon. Agreed. And I think that even in... I would, I would actually argue that even in the newer Disney movies, the ones mm. that I like, like The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi... Mm-hmm. It's still not in there. They're mm. pretty briskly paced, and there's a lot going on, and it's mm. a lot I like about them. And I'm sure there's a little influence that's seeped in there, but 
J.J. Abrams and Ryan Johnson didn't grow up with the same shit George Lucas did. They grew up with Star Wars. Well, they grew up with Star Wars. I think J.J. Abrams is particularly guilty of that. Mm. I think J.J. Abrams, his movie, especially The Force Awakens, Mm. is mega influenced by specifically Star Wars to the point where Mm. it's copying beats and characters. You call it the Tiny Toon Adventures version. You're right. Um, I think there's a few other things that slip in there. I think J.J. Abrams is more influenced by horror than J.J. Abrams is even aware. <laughs> to the extent that in Rise of the Skywalker, which we probably should do an episode of this about Hellbound Hellraiser 2. Because apparently J.J. <laughs> Abrams is a fucking fan. Because that is what Exegol is. But, yeah, it's it's only when you watch The Last Jedi that mm. Ryan Johnson isn't intensely devoted to Star Wars. And I think this is something that pisses people off. And this is one of the reasons why I think The Last Jedi feels more like Star Wars to me. It doesn't necessarily feel like Flash Gordon. But it feels like someone taking all the things that they love and putting it into the Flash Gordon framework. And it's a new generation. We have new perspectives and new influences. Many of which are rather old. Ryan Johnson is a very well... um, Whatever the movie version of well-read. Well-viewed. Well-viewed. He's Mm. a very well-viewed filmmaker. Um, And yeah, he put in influences from all throughout the history of cinema, but it's not the influences that George Lucas did. Mm. But he puts them in the same fast-paced, freewheeling framework. Mm. So that that feels like Star Wars and we've moved forward. Yeah. J.J. Abrams feels like Star Wars and we're doing Star Wars again. And I think he got away with it for one film. Yeah, right, Force Awakens works, and he tried to do it again a second yeah. time, and it, it yeah. felt kind of like we're just gonna we're gonna add a scavenger hunt, but otherwise yeah. it's the same basic shit. Yeah, it's like in Last Jedi, it's like okay, we're on a gambling planet. Oh, that's a new thing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I haven't yeah. seen that one before. We actually haven't mm. talked about other than Jabba the Hutt, the wealthy. Mm. What is it like? What is money to be the one like on percent this, yeah. here? And like that's something that that's new. Mm. We haven't seen that. Mm. That's exciting. Yeah. I, I really like the Last Jedi, but I know I know some people don't. But I feel like the people, I feel like the people who reject the Last Jedi, are mad that the new Star Wars movies aren't influenced by Star Wars. Star Wars wasn't influenced by Star Wars, at least no. not originally. Star Wars was a, a culmination of everything that the filmmaker loved, and I feel like every filmmaker who comes to Star Wars should bring everything that they love. They love, and yeah, and I, I wish that Star Wars were in a place even as early as Return of uh, uh, the Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, where the filmmakers were allowed to be a little bit more extemporaneous. Agreed. Where uh, you know they were allowed to bring their passion for something uh, that they enjoyed as kids to uh, a, that similar sort of universe, that similar framework. I'm, I don't know what Irvin Kirshner liked as a kid. All I know is that he actually made a really good sequel to a Star Wars movie. He really did. Um, I don't know about Richard Marquand I either. Think, but, yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't know what Richard Marquand loves. All, yeah. all, I know is like, all, all I know is that he was kind of like... Scuttlebutt is that he was a bit of a yes man. Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, like, there's, there's not a, like... Irvin Kirshner's, mm. pers- like, we're... Talking way more about Star Wars well, on but, our podcast yeah, well, about me, not me, talking about Star Wars, but just for the record, yeah. Irvin Kirshner, I think, is a very uh, mature filmmaker uh-huh. in a lot of ways, and I think he wasn't afraid to slow things down and mm. you know do it his own way. I think Richard Marquand wanted to make the movie George Lucas wanted him to make, mm, and I exactly, think that's yeah. fine. But, but uh, by the I way, Richard, Irvin Kirshner was weird. He also did RoboCop Two, which is very funny and subversive. RoboCop Two is amazing. RoboCop by 2 the is way, really uh, underappreciated. I, I, I will take RoboCop Two over Empire Strikes Back any of any okay, day of the week. That I won't uh, do. But RoboCop Two, because <laughs> that movie is, is sick. RoboCop Two is absolutely insane. How it many, is way better than it gets. 
any credit How for. many scenes in The Empire Strikes Back features RoboCop ripping out a guy's brain and smashing it with his fist? Not enough. Not enough is I'll the answer. I'll grant you that, but uh, anyway. <laughs> maybe I'm just a sick fuck. I don't know. Um, but I feel like uh, when you get a filmmaker who really is sort of tapping into their childhood passions, first yeah. of all, my boss, Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, That's all he does. Uh, you yeah. look, and you look at Steven Spielberg, who worked with George Lucas on Raiders well, of the Lost Ark, which is the that exact same. Exactly. Well. It's very yeah. episodic. It moves very quickly. Exactly. He's, and and the, uh, that that's clear, clearly and openly derived. In fact, the scenes and musical cues and characters are taken directly from other movies for yeah. something like Kill Bill. Yeah. Um, uh, and I feel like that's something that uh, Spielberg did with the Indiana Jones movies. And I feel like, at least with the first three, mm-hmm. uh, he was able to maintain a lot of that adventure serial vibe I, I that think, I think Star Wars kind of abandoned with its first sequel. I don't think it abandoned it, but I see what or you're saying. Or may not abandon, just change tax with its sequel. I think, I think it changed perspectives on it, but I do think it's still there. Spielberg's actually a really good example because you mm. can tell when he's doing Raiders of the Lost Ark, that and entity the first three uh, Indiana mm-hmm. Jones movies that he's making movies he wanted to see as a kid. Yeah, and then when he makes Ready Player One, it's different. He's, he's because he's making movies that a, his kids wanted to see. Like he, he, he's, well, he's, he's adapting a book from somebody who wanted to recreate the magic of watching early Spielberg movies. Exactly. So he doesn't have this the same emotional connection to it. Mm-hmm. In many respects, even though like it's not incompetently made or anything. A, I think it's actually a crap story, but if we're going to make Ready Player One, Spielberg's the last person I get to do mm. it. Like, if you must get someone from that generation to get, do Ready Player Verhoeven, One. Yeah. Oh, God. Paul, Paul Verhoeven, yeah. Paul Verhoeven would make it so interesting that the studio would fire him. <laughs> like, no, I, I don't get Paul Verhoeven. If you actually, listen, if you want to make that story, oh. and if you want to make that story, you know, just from the page and make it work mm. and make it about... Uh, the visual Lo- loving effects. those the I think things about, that yeah well I th- because what I think the person from that generation if you had to get someone from that generation of filmmakers to do it you get Zemeckis okay because Zemeckis understands love of escapism and visual effects the, and, and te- the technology especially and yeah. he has not lost his sense of wonder for things that are new mm-hmm. so Zemeckis maybe could have pulled that movie off I'm not convinced because I think the story sucks mm. but in any case. Um, we got to path. Well, we did, but I think this is all very important because we are talking about influencing. Uh, this, this is this is an entire podcast about influences, and yeah. I think uh, you know the Flash Gordon serials. Not just thanks to Star Wars and, and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, but because they tap into something so much older in terms of uh, young young man's fantasy adventures. Uh kind of have permeated throughout cinema and they were all just sort of codified with Star Wars. And I think Star Wars is the thing that has allowed those notions to remain pervasive throughout adventure cinema to this day. Mm-hmm. <coughs> You're right? Excuse me. Yes. Okay. Um, I agree. Uh, I think when you watch the, these Flash Gordon serials and they have been released on DVD, sadly, like the decent DVD of it mm-hmm. uh, is, I believe, out of print and rather expensive. But you can, you know, you can find them online pretty easily. The DVDs are out there. Um, the first one is actually not in, in the public domain, so you might have to pay for that one. But yeah. the follow-up uh, serials are in the public okay. domain. I actually didn't know that. Mm. Um, if you love Star Wars, I think you owe it to yourself to watch at mm. least this first serial. Again, it might you know maybe don't mainline it, but I think this is a really 
fun, innocent in mm. a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some sleaze they're, in it. They're, yeah. they're little. They're they're more than a little sexist. They're pretty racist. They're not the most racist thing of the time. Believe me, we've seen some of them. Mm. It's nowhere. It's not even close. But yeah, there's some racism in here. Um, but mostly. Handsome dude fights dumb looking monsters. <laughs> Girls fawn all over him. Mm. He eventually picks the one that he met first. And uh, then everything is okay. Mm. It's fast paced. It's silly. You're going to have a decent time with it. I do recommend visiting these early Flash Gordon serials. And if you have the means. Check out the comics. The comics are actually really gorgeous. Like mm. the art, even in, like the first strip, mm. you watch it. I'm just like, this looks really good. Like this is actually like kind of like interestingly and excitingly like told. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at each panel in a comic as a cut in a movie, like mm. an edit, they get a lot out of that thing. That thing is fast paced. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of interesting sort of. Uh, yeah, it's, I'm sorry, I don't know enough about art. It's really good. <laughs> um, so I do recommend checking it out. Um, and um, yeah, that is episode zero. That's the first episode of yeah, episode so, zero. Thank you. We, we got episode off the one beat- of episode zero. Episode one of episode zero. We, we got <laughs> off the beaten path, but that's our want. That's uh, what we and do. I, I feel like we are... Uh, z- still zeroing in on the format of this thing, but well, I think it's a new we're, podcast. We're, we'll we're, we're discussing sort of the way in, these things influence one another. We're dealing with the anxiety of influence, and uh, as we go forward, we're going to be talking about different facets and how they sort of bled into Star Wars, and how Star Wars allowed them to continue to bleed or perhaps not yeah. into um, other things. Some of the some of the films that we'll be covering mm. on this podcast don't have as pervasive an influence mm. uh, as Flash Gordon. Uh, some of them only influenced one sequence or one moment. Uh, but uh, next time on episode zero, mm-hmm. we will be talking about a film that, like Flash Gordon, was an enormous influence on Star Wars. But unlike Flash Gordon, is considered a cinema classic. And it comes from a director who is considered one of the greatest filmmakers who ever lived. It is Akira Kurosawa's samurai epic the Hidden Fortress. If you want to watch The Hidden Fortress, uh, it is, of course, available on DVD from the Criterion Collection. Uh, if you go to the Criterion channel, uh, you can watch it there. Uh, and it is a real stunning epic. Mm. And I cannot wait to talk about it in great detail and the very fundamental way it affected the way Star Wars is told. Mm. Uh, so, uh, Whitney, any last thoughts before we move on? Uh, just I'm looking forward to watching Kurosawa he's mm-hmm. one of my favorite filmmakers and uh, The Hidden Fortress yeah isn't so uh, influenced on uh, on like Star Wars other than a few kind of structural elements and, well, I, I think the structural elements it, are fundamental yeah and well and also uh, like a few notable characters there is a, a samurai element to Star Wars that doesn't get so widely acknowledged mm-hmm. but we, it we'll def- talk about that. definitely came from this this cinema classic from the 1950s so yeah, yeah we'll be talking about that um, so uh by all means please check that out we encourage you to watch these films before we talk about them because mm-hmm. we'll talk about 
I mean, we didn't go into a lot of nuts and bolts about the plot of the Flash Gordon serials because they're really it's, long, it's, and it, it, it would have gotten a little tedious to go through every single plot point. Uh, especially considering how many of them are basically just to get you to the next plot point that I'm allowed to do with anything. But Hidden Fortress will probably dig a lot into the movie itself, even the parts that don't have anything to do with Star Wars, uh, because it's a it's a really great film and it's worth having that long discussion about. And again, our goal with this podcast isn't exclusively to talk about how these things affected Star Wars. It's also to use Star Wars to raise awareness of these older things. Yeah. So that you can gain a greater appreciation of all of cinema history with Star Wars as a gateway. Yeah, we're just going to walk through that door. Mm. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, we, uh, what was it? Yeah, you can write us letters at criticallyacclaimed.net uh, if you have any questions, uh, any thoughts. Um, we have an extensive list of uh, movies that we know influence Star Wars and various parts of Star Wars directly, not just the first movie, but the variety of them. Um, but if you have any suggestions, we'd be interested. Mm. Um, tweet that. I think it would probably be better. I, I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. Together we are at Critic Acclaim. If you have a suggestion, especially one that isn't as well known, that might be a good idea because, you know, we got the big ones. And we've got some of the esoteric ones as well. But mm. if there's anything particular you want us to get to, because we're not going to cover literally everything that had any influence on Star Wars. We can't, we can't watch the, all the same things that George Lucas did. Well, yeah, we don't have a lifetime. Like mm. it's, but we'll, we're going to get to a lot of them. Mm. Um, if you want to help out the show, we would love you to. Uh, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Mm. Uh, over at the Critically Acclaimed Network Patreon, we have a ton of exclusive content. You get to vote for future episodes of various podcasts on this podcast network. You get exclusive podcasts uh, such as All Our Yesterdays, where we review every single episode of Star Trek ever made in production order. Uh, we have Only the Best, where we review every film ever nominated for Best Picture in chronological order. Uh, we have Out of Gas, a brand new hmm. podcast where we're reviewing every single episode of Firefly. Uh, we have Not on Disney Plus, uh, a podcast in which we look at mostly TV movies and miniseries that are currently not available on Disney Plus, even though they're supposed to be. Mm. We do commentary tracks. We have a ton of other stuff over there as well. Uh, and if you sign up now for the first time, there's probably at least like 100 hours of backlog. Yeah. Like, that's probably not an exaggeration. Like, there's a ton mm. of backlog <laughs> that just instant content you can just access. Mm. Uh, so if you can afford to help us out, great. If not... Please leave us a review. Tell a friend if they're looking for something to entertain them right now in these very difficult times in which we live. Um, that would be nice. Um, yeah. So thank you for listening. Yeah. And thanks um, for coming along. And uh, may the force be with you. Stay tuned for the next chapter. We'll figure out how to end the we'll podcast later. Yeah. Yeah.